Hello, hello. Welcome to the Improv Comedy Connection podcast. I'm Whit, and today we've got a great guest who also is big news right now in the improv world. John Carr is someone I've wanted to have on the show for a while. He's been with Dad's Garage in Atlanta for almost 20 years and became their artistic director early in 2020. He's a talented performer and playwright and also someone who is a contributor to the improv community generally. But after setting the date for our interview, news broke that John had been hired by Second City as their executive producer. As you'll no doubt pick up on, John is smart, thoughtful, and insightful, and I think it's a great hire by Second City. And if they're smart, they'll take full advantage of what he's bringing into their company. In my opinion, he can really be a transformational hire in that role, while also building on the good stuff that's already there. It's tricky business, but I'm excited to see what John does. So enough of that. Let's spend some time with John Carr on the Improv Comedy Connection. John, uh, as I said in the pre-show... When we set this date, uh, life uh, life has taken a couple of turns uh, for you, some big ones. Yeah, uh, yeah. How, how how how's your state of mind right now? <laughs> let me ask. Let me ask you that. Uh, I mean, it's good. I'm I'm definitely uh, excited about these new opportunities that are coming down. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, right now this is this is always the the fun part of these types of. Um, moments and times is like the all the possibilities are there in your face and um right uh right there and so i'm excited i'm thrilled i know once you know we get started and start working reality will come screaming in really quickly and we'll be uh, making adjustments based on that but at this moment right now it's all just possibilities and opportunities and i'm i'm thrilled and excited yeah well I'm excited to talk about some of those possibilities. Um, an interesting time to try to work out what those possibilities are. Yeah. But I'd like to start to know a little bit more about your journey, because I think in some ways that makes the position that you're in and how you're going to attack it, I think, unique. Um, I don't I don't know. Has Second City ever brought in, to your knowledge anyways, somebody outside of... Second City for a position like yours? Well, I, I don't know that they've had a lot of people in the position like mine. Um, um, Andrew Alexander was the person that had it before me, and I believe he started in that position sometime in the mid-70s. So When, when he bought in, or, yeah. or was at Toronto, right? Yeah, he brought into Toronto. Um, okay. And so, so, like, so there, there have not been a lot of people period in this position um and so yeah so it is i think it's it's safe to say that it is uh, a pretty unique a unique position to be in for sure yeah maybe i should ask is the the is is it executive director is the official title uh, executive producer producer okay mm -hmm. so t tell tell us what does that mean specifically for what your role is going to be at mm -hmm. second city Right. So um, basically, there are there's one other person that is at my level. And basically, it's kind of um, broken into two parts where one person kind of handles uh, the logistics and business side of it, and the other person handles the kind of creative side of it. So for my position, I would be handling the creative sides, which would um, include um, uh, the TC, the uh, Second City Training Center, um, and 
um, our stage works and our film school. And so all of the kind of the creative ends of uh, Second City, I would be overseeing. Okay. Okay. So outside of Andrew, was Anthony at, at sort of uh, interim that is in correct. that position? Yes, was there so, anyone before him other than um, Andrew? It, um, that I actually couldn't tell you. I'm not, okay. I, I think they had kind of a different structure okay. um, earlier than that. But yeah, but okay. he, as far as I know, Anthony was the, or Andrew was the first kind of person in that role as it is formed right now. Gotcha. Okay. So how long ago did you get into improv? Oof, it's coming up <laughs> on about 20 years now. So okay. It's, it's right. been a good while. Okay, so you and I started around the same time, but where did did you start at Dad's Garage? Was that your first exposure to improv? To improv, yes. Yeah, I started at Dad's Garage, and I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> the classic story of, you know, living, moving into a new city. I moved to Atlanta um, from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I live, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, then moved to Tulsa for two years and then came to Atlanta and, you know, new place, new town, didn't know very many people. And the one place that I really enjoyed going to was dad's garage, seeing shows and watch shows for a good year and then decided to take classes and kind of went on from there. And how would you describe the, the dad's garage? I mean, if you could place it, in American or anywhere else in the improv uh, world, what what is the what is the Dad's Garage approach? Yeah, so Dad's Garage has a tendency to we're more of a story based improv. Um, our improv is based in uh, Keith Johnstone, um, mm-hmm. and so for us, we're we're very much about um, playing the story of the scene and kind of creating a full beginning, middle, and end to our Mm -hmm. improv scene and which helps us because we also do a lot of stage plays and we write our own plays. So it kind of works in tandem with kind of that whole storytelling um, system that we have there. Um, And then we play theater sports, uh, which is another Keith Johnstone um, uh, format. And so our tendency, we, uh, the way we describe it is we play very fast um, in our okay. improv. And so, um, I think those are kind of the two big things that distinguish what dad's garage improv, uh, the differences in dad's garage improv is to, uh, what you might see in other places. So as you're, as you're taking your classes, what is it that you, uh, what is it that appealed to you? What, what are, what are the things that got you excited about improv was it the story or was it something else <laughs> i mean on a on a super basic level yeah i think it's with most people it was it starts with the community right it's that it's that idea that what do they say the the number one fear in america is public speaking and mm-hmm. as an improviser we're asking you to do public speaking and also not have any plan for it so this yeah. is literally we're asking you to do, do the scariest thing in america um yeah. And so there's something about that experience of going through that, especially when you're first going through those classes where you're taking this huge risk and you're doing it in front of these, you know, 10 to 14 people uh, that bond you together, you know, that you're all kind of in this risk taking. And so for me, there's a little lot of like just trying to fit in, find my community that was that brought me in in the beginning and having that connection to those people was the first thing that like kind of excited me. I think the second thing was just, you know, at the time, 
I had been working for a church and okay. um, I had been, uh, and so I was running the children's department. And so there's very much this kind of like feeling of, I have to be very careful and aware of what I'm doing because I'm in this very public role and, you know, watching your steps, watching what you're doing, what your appearance are is and, and that sort of thing. And so improv was this one time in the week where I could just <laughs> say anything I wanted and like, and yeah. everybody was going to be on board for it. And there's, there's this, this moment of freedom and it was like my therapy um, okay. in a lot of ways. And that's kind of what first kind of connected me to the to improv and what I really enjoyed. But then as I kind of started developing, I saw it as this amazing tool that allowed me to kind of define and create my artistic voice. I was very much in the beginning, a guy who like, I saw a, a great improviser do something on stage. And then I would just repeat that every scene that I was in. And I, mm -hmm. it got super annoying. Like everyone hated that. So, <laughs> so I kind of had to take that uh, that second step of saying, okay, now I have to develop my own voice and what is it that I do that makes me funny? And so going through that process kind of helped me define that for myself, but then also kind of helped me define my voice as a human being in the world yeah. um, and what makes me unique and what makes me uh, special. And so discovering that voice, learning how to craft a story and then learning how to tell a story in an effective way I think uh, is one of the, is the thing that like keeps me wanting to be involved and keep doing that and keeps challenging me now, 20 years later, as I start mm -hmm. learning how to tell these stories and then melding that with making a point. Like the story isn't just to get a laugh, the story is saying something. And so that's kind right. of the thing that's been pushing me now later on in my career. The concept of uh, your voice on stage or if it's a stand-up, they talk about finding their voice, okay. an author talks about finding their voice, all those kind of things. But I, I just want to pick up on one of the things that you said in that is, is uh, something to the effect, you know, what makes me unique, what makes me special, mm -hmm. um, and tying that to the voice that you have. Is it an awkward question to say, well, what is it that makes you <laughs> unique and special? Because uh, I like the phrasing of it, John, yeah. because, you know, I, I think it's um, it's important that we're not trying to copy something, right? Yeah. And ideally, improv, if it is a, a at least a part about expressing ourselves, knowing what it is that we have in, in our identity, I think is important too, right? Yeah, Absolutely. So, so tell me about the special, unique person that John Carr is, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, no, not not at all. Uh, I, I think I think it's a, a a lot of different things. I think it's um, I think a my voice is always evolving, um, mm -hmm. and so because I think part of it is when we talk about what makes your voice your voice, it's not simply learning. Here are the three characters I do that are really funny and this is right. why this is my voice it's more about kind of I being able to weirdly look in the mirror and look at yourself and yeah. discover things about yourself and then kind of translating that into performance and the thing about it is if I'm doing my job right as an artist I'm always discovering new things about me and then yeah. that is affecting my voice so I mean there's a lot of things that make me unique um, in my voice. I think, um, I mean, right off the bat, just being an African-American in the improv world, um, especially having done it as long as I have, like at mm -hmm. the beginning of my career, I was 
that by itself made me incredibly unique um, in in this in this space. And so um, there's that, but there's also like I was I was um, homeschooled by traveling Christian clowns. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, so you know I so have, cliche. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it, the story we've heard a million times. Um, so, you know, I have that, I have a unique voice of coming from someone that was homeschooled in kind of that experience. I have a unique voice in someone who was raged very religiously and how that kind of intersects with the comedy that I do. Um, Mm -hmm. the play that I, the last, uh, scripted play that I I wrote called Black Nerd, it's interesting. It's funny because I, I talk to a lot of people and they kind of talk about like, Oh, it's a great show because of like how well you did the intersectionality between race and comedy and all these kinds of things. And I'm like, thank you for that. But what it really is, is here's a bunch of things that happened to me in my life and I just strung them along in a play. And so it it came from an honest and truthful place. But then you can see how the cultural things that affect are affecting the world kind of play into it and it wasn't because i was setting out to say something about the world i was just this is my life and my life reflects what is happening in the world right now um and so it allows you to do some more complicated shows and then i think the final part of that is just like i've i've really enjoyed expanding myself as an artist and so you know coming out of you know the christian world and kind of having this place of like a lot of what you should and shouldn't do being told to you the moment I got out of that all of a sudden I was just like I want to experience everything so I went out I became a professional wrestler for a little while I was the Coca-Cola polar bear for a little while I was I directed I directed That terrible... wasn't your wrestler name. No, no, it was not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although that would be a great wrestling name. It sure um, would. <laughs> uh, I directed terrible rap videos for like 6 months. Like I, I tried all these weird and Well, different... that's just bad marketing. Jim. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I uh, well, I wasn't. I wasn't very good. So you know, what? I'm honest about that. <laughs> okay. I've, I've come okay. to grips with that. Uh, do not yeah. ask me to direct your rap video. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I come from all these things, um, and then like um, Write Club, which is a show that happens here in Atlanta, is this um, writing show. Um, but okay. that's like purely like they it's they have humor in it, but it's really focused more on dr- the dramatic um, and like. And honesty and being open in front of an audience and so I I did a lot of that stuff so like now my voice is kind of finding ways to rather than say I'm a comedian and I do funny things it is comedy is a tool that allows me to tell these different stories and I can now weave in drama and I can weave in jokes and I can weave in all these experiences and different skill sets that I can hopefully take the audience on a journey so it's not just we're doing, uh, we get a laugh, you know, every 30 seconds consistently through the right. whole play. But now we can take these dips and valleys and and have more of a journey through the work that I think makes it ultimately a lot more richer. And so that's, I think, is kind of the, the newest part of my um, artistic voice that I'm really exploring and enjoying exploring. About Black Nerd, that was like 2017, 2018 when yeah, you put that out? Yeah, mm-hmm. Okay, so I haven't seen it. I don't know if there is a, a the availability to see a recording of it or things like that. But when I saw an interview, one of the things that I, I think you said mm-hmm. was something to the effect that you weren't seeing voices like yours on stage. I, I think you might have used the word voice, but I might yeah. be wrong on that. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, 
you know, you talked about how you were kind of stringing stories together. Is it, how, how do I phrase this? And this is not good as an interviewer to struggle with this kind of thing, but it's, it's kind of like, is, is it that you, you want to see the experiences that you can more easily contextualize, or is it a sense that there is a, a different perspective or just part of humanity that isn't isn't out there do you yeah. do you know what yeah. i'm getting at absolutely no a hundred percent um well good think... well then you can you can tell me after what i asked you but let's hear the answer to this question yeah, yeah but i mean like what 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 makes when i say like you know i don't see my voice or my, myself on stage very often um i yeah. think there's a couple of things there i think one i just think in general uh, mm-hmm. We hadn't seen a lot of African American voice representation on right. stage, just in general across the board. Um, yes. And then there is this tendency, which, I, like, I totally get as um, you know, being in leadership in a theater is okay. If I put an African American play on stage or something that's lead, then there is a a certain story that goes with that, mm-hmm. and there's a certain type of story. And what you start seeing is when you have African-Americans on stage and their work on stage, it can sometimes feel like it's almost just different variations of the same story. And so so there's also this kind of next level of, okay, as an African-American, I had an ex- I have, we have experiences in the world and in America. But yeah. as a human being who is an African-American, there are different African-American experiences within that. And that's the thing we haven't, I haven't seen explored a lot in that yeah. sphere of like what are the because the african-american experience is not a monolith there are different right, yeah. versions of it and so for me that's why it was important to do the show of the the black nerd experience mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. it's still a black experience but it is this different type that you don't see and like when you talk about like representation in media like it's you know carlton and um urkel like that's yeah. that is that is the reference points to those ideas, and so right. for me, I kind of wanted to kind of put a humanized voice, uh, a representation on the stage to kind of mm-hmm. express that. And then I think the other part of it was there. There's a, definitely a human part of it where a lot of the show was really centered around the idea of not fitting into this prescribed stereotype or box in either way where it was this idea of you know i grew up in um inglewood california and i had a bunch of cousins and um we kind of you know hung out and spent time together and there was from inglewood yeah as well yeah okay um and so my all pretty much my extended family is all california based um and so um as coming up as a black homeschooler like my experience with my cousins was I never fit fit in with my cousins. Like we, right. we, we, I was, I would never felt like I was part of their group or they, they, if we ever went somewhere together, it was very much, they were, they were forced to, to bring me there versus wanting to be there. And so it was kind of this feeling of not fitting in there. But at the same time, I had this nerd family, but it would tended to be predominantly white. So we, we liked a lot of the same things, but then there was also this kind of barrier of you don't understand my experience as a black person. So there was yeah. never that feeling of there is a group of people that completely understand me or completely right. get me or that I fit into. And then kind of working to deal with 
how do you deal with not truly fitting in anywhere? Um, right. And I think that's the part of it that I saw a lot of folks that were, that you know, I've got a lot of response for people that were in the LGBTQ community um, and um, people that had very different life experiences and weren't mm-hmm. African-American or didn't have the African-American experience, but still this play spoke to them because that feeling of not fitting in was a universal idea. Right. So um, I don't know if this is a term or not, mm-hmm. but um, as you were describing it, you used the word intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like a micro intersectionality mm-hmm. yeah. that illuminates maybe the macro better, mm-hmm. yeah. if that makes sense. Because, Absolutely. you know, yeah, when someone says this is the the African-American experience or the, the white American experience or this, that, or the other thing, there are things that you could probably extrapolate and say, okay, this is this is a relatively common or mm-hmm. uh, usual experience, mm-hmm. but that's not everybody's experience right. because everyone's different. Mm-hmm. Every community is different. Every aspect of our lives sort of informs it. But by knowing more about these other micro experiences and other macro experiences, we probably understand ourselves better as humans. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a weird thing in like when when you talk about like the theater folks about like, especially writing is being specific. And the reflex and knee jerk is I don't want to be too specific because I'm the only one that had this experience. But the reality is the more specific you are, the more honest it feels. And mm-hmm. that's what people respond to is the honesty because in the real world, there are not, you know, good guys and bad guys. There aren't black hats and white hats. There's, there are all these different shades of gray and complexity to human beings. And, you know, some people are wrong, but then there's kind of right about this one thing and like people are yeah. right. And, kind of, and so there's all these kind of complexities that make human and real experience is real and Mm -hmm. when you start and when you get away from the idea of i have to shape this show in a very generic templative way and start getting into the specifics and complexity of it the show starts feeling like it reflects real life and real experiences more and it connects with people more because of that so that also suggests nuance Mm -hmm. um is that much more important yeah and you talked about the experience with the written play. How nuanced do you think improv can be? <laughs> I, I I really think it can be. I think I think it it can be even more so depending on what your a the experience level of the people and then what yeah. you're trying to do. Um, because I think when you're doing improv in the correct way, um, what you're getting is just honesty. What you're getting is pure, this is, I haven't had time to filter this and to Mm -hmm. put this into a way that is acceptable or like society wants me to, and I have to just react honestly. And suddenly you, if you're doing it right without filtering yourself in that way, you can start having these really interesting, complex conversations on stage that I think uh, can be like helpful. Like, um... My, uh, the improv group I'm part of is Dark Side of the Room, and it's an all-African-American improv group. And it's interesting, the scenes that we're able to do, because there have been moments, like with any improv group, and been a part of a number of improv groups, and 
there have been, you know, a handful of shows that I walked away from. That show was hilarious. That was a great show. We killed it. Yeah. But Dark Side of the Room is the only um, improv group that I've walked away from a show. And I said, I'm proud of that show. That I'm proud of what we said and the points that we were making in that show. It was funny. It was super funny. But that was the first time I'm like, I'm proud of the message that we presented in this show. And I think that's where improv is interesting to me as well. Are you able to relate one of those experiences where you walked away with that sense of being proud? Um, yeah, uh, there are a lot of different moments. The one I, I, I have to bring up, I wasn't, I, it was funny, I was on stage, but I wasn't in this scene. It, it, there was this great scene, it was this young kid that we brought in, and crap, his name is slipping my mind. Uh, okay. But we, we try to bring in some um, younger performers in um, just to kind of, you know, help them, lift them up and yeah. that sort of thing. And he, he did this scene, and it was so great because he was he did the scene as a meteor like he was embodying a meteor and one of our other performers chris gray was embodying the sun and it was just this scene where the meteor is talking to the sun as he's going and heading toward earth and this meteor is saying how excited he is to be at earth he's going to get to earth he's heard all these wonderful things and the sun was just explaining no one wants you there uh, they're going to look for every way to destroy you. They're going to look for every way to get rid of you as a meteor. They are not excited to see you despite how wonderful you think they are. And it mm. became this wonderful metaphor um, mm-hmm. for kind of um, uh, that feeling in that um, in the, that black experience of like, yeah, you have all the great intentions in the world, but if you're not perceived the correct way, then right. everything's going to work against you, destroy you. And it was just, and it was a hilarious and sweet and sad right. and cool scene that, like, really sort of said something powerful while being silly and ridiculous as a meteor talking to the sun, you know? Right. And that's the right. kind of thing that, like, interests me and amazes me. I might want to come back to that. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. interested in more of that, but I want to, before I lose it, you said, um, something interesting you took if, if improv, improv when it's done correctly <laughs> which is a big statement mm-hmm. if someone says how do you do improv correctly yeah what what do you say to that improv done correctly is improv that is so there's two parts to it one mm-hmm. i think there is there's the learning phase of any improviser where you're learning the rules, you're learning how improv works and all that kind of stuff. And people get frustrated because they're like, well, I know the rules, so I should be good at improv. And it's like, well, no, because the rules need to be embedded in you. Like they need to be, it needs to be almost muscle memory where I don't have to mm-hmm. think about the rules. My natural instinct becomes doing the rules. And so there's that phase of it. Once you get past that phase where the improv rules are sort of embedded into you, then you can have this moment where you are truly unfiltered. You are truly um, not thinking about the rules and all you're thinking about is your partner and being supportive and creating something and seeing these things and discovering and being able to truly listen to what the other performer is saying and making 
making all those things important and when it's it's one of the it's i guess it's the closest thing to like a zen analogy is like mm-hmm. the closer your brain is to being blank um and just having zero thoughts the closer you are to achieving you know improv nirvana sort of thing and yeah. so so it's this so improv improv done correctly is improv that is that is funny and unfiltered that's the that's the individual mm-hmm. answer um but because improv at least mostly is not done alone <laughs> right um what what do you think are the ingredients that permit uh, that that uh, vision of correct correctly done improv to happen i i think it it's a it's a team that trusts each other but it's a t- team that has different experiences i think i think that's I think there is a tendency as a human being that mm-hmm. you want to put people in your improv group that are similar to you and that you all kind of have this like group mind and we all think the same way and it's cool and it makes improv easier, but it doesn't make improv layered and having a group that has different perspective, different life experiences combined with a level of extreme trust um, in each other, I think those are the two big ingredients to creating improv that could be can be truly great um, mm-hmm. in, in a way. And so I think it's just different voices and complete trust and you know, I mean, based skill level is helps yeah. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> if you had what sounded like a higher or more um, exciting experience or, or that sense of being proud mm-hmm. with the dark side of the room troop. Are there some elements or lessons or experiences that you can take from that experience that you could put into another troop? Mm-hmm. How, how do you get to more moments to be proud of in some ways? How does that happen, John? Yeah, um, I, think, I think there's a couple of ways. I think one, it's the idea of like, as a troop, asking why, <laughs> why do you exist? Like, yeah. why are you there in the first place, right? Because I think a lot of improv groups exist because the people in those groups want to be in an improv team. And that's fine, like there's nothing wrong with that. But then you're not, you're not there to help anyone. You're not there to say anything. You're not there to do anything. That's the the joy is in your own self-congratulations, and which is yeah. 100% fine. I think the question then becomes, if that's if you want to say something, um, then how your troop is formed and how and what the format that is kind of around has to be built around what you're trying to say. I mean, it's like a thesis statement, you know? Mm-hmm. You need to have the thesis. You gotta be like, mm-hmm. what do you wanna say with this? And then you build everything around that sort of thesis statement. Not only who the cast is, but also what the format is and mm-hmm. um, what you're doing. And so once you kind of get that idea of we're trying to say something or we're trying to make a point about something um, with our work, um, then you kind of build outward from there. And that's when you start kind of working it, having conversations about it. And I think if you're trying to say something, the thing that I really appreciate is when you're trying to say something, but not everyone has the same take on the thing you're trying to say, right? Right. Um, right. So for Dark Side of the Room, the whole concept was we're trying to highlight 
the fact that there aren't a lot of representation in all these classic movies. Um, but if you mm. talk to each of us individually, um, yeah. our our belief on why that has happened, our belief on what needs to be done about how that's happened, the belief of how can we fix? Some of us believe there's ways to fix Hollywood. Some of us are like, you need to burn Hollywood down. You're like, you know, there's mm-hmm. all these different perspectives and ideas um, that we're saying one thing, but we're all taking it from our own different angle but we all have the trust that we're all going to support each other in these scenes to say something interesting the other groups that you're in have have you had a you know you describe sort of the let's let's get together and do a show kind of thing it's almost like this is this is our way to have our uh, a bowling night or whatever it is you know <laughs> yeah um that's that's like you said that's fine but you mm-hmm. might say that is a uh, a lower or less ambitious uh, <laughs> uh, goal for the group um, or purpose for the group. Are there other groups that have had higher purposes that uh, that you've experienced? Or, or do we need to have... Maybe here's another question. I know I'm throwing a number of things at you, but are there too many groups that are just about, let's kind of knock it around a little bit, as opposed to having something more to say? I, I wouldn't say there are too many groups. I think where we get where we have the problem is it's not that it's not that there are too many of any one thing it's that it only becomes a problem when you're trying to fit a round peg in a square hole and what i mean by that so there's another group that i'm a part of called dear john and this group the premise of it is everybody in the group's first name is john (laughs) <laughs> that's it it's a dumb group and it's literally designed because there's a bunch of us that like were at different theaters that didn't really get to play with each other very much and so somebody was just like we're all named john let's call ourselves still john and do a show or two and so we're okay. like do we want to have a workshop about that like no it's not that important <laughs> like let's just let's just get up and do the scene and so that show is a lot of fun i love the guys that are in that show we're not making a statement about anything mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but so we go play, you know, where we can play, you know, and it's great. I think where it feels, where it gets challenging is when a group that is, uh, doesn't have the skill set, doesn't have a real point, that is just kind of exists to exists. Um, I think it's when those groups are put into places that are, um, you know, representative of a theater or in a higher place because like all you've got really is your theater's name to determine whether or not you put on good shows or you don't put on good shows Mm -hmm. and if you're putting if you're if you're trying to be fair and i think this is a big thing is like people get the word fair and equitable confused a lot and you're like well it's not fair i how come i don't get to do a saturday night 8 p.m slot i'm we're We've been doing improv for four years. Like, yeah, and you haven't done a workshop in those four years. Also, you put zero effort into your name. Also, everybody's in your group has been doing it for six months. And so it's just like, that's that's not where that should be. That should be in a different place that is specifically designed where the audience is coming in knowing like, these are just people just hanging out and having a good time and I'm in on it and that's great. Um, Right. It's 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 why 
grad shows happen on grad night, right? Because mm-hmm. people need to understand these are people that have just taken a class that came out. We're presenting him. This is great. Let's celebrate. This doesn't represent the highest right. quality of this theater. And I think that's right. where things get a little bit confused and murky. When you took on the artistic director role, because that artistic director or executive producer or you know whatever mm-hmm. the leadership is in mm-hmm. the particular community, they have to, uh, I suppose, shape that um, mm-hmm. experience about what are our Saturday night shows going right. to say about us, right? Mm-hmm. So what when you stepped into that role which was just was it just at the beginning of this year John uh yeah, yeah. I think my first day as uh, our dad's garage artistic director I think my first official day was February 1st and then oh. COVID happened. yeah I know <laughs> timed it super well oh <laughs> um, okay, but let's spin back before 2020 yeah. put its full weight behind the punches. What, what was your thought about how you were going to to shape things, or you yeah. know what what was what was the vision that you had, assuming a normal experience? No, I think I think the bigger uh, it was funny because I kept talking to um, Kevin, who was the previous artistic director at dad's before me and we were we, we would talk about like what's going to be my thing that i bring you know that's going to be my big initiative and change and i was like honestly it's going to be super boring and no one's going to be super excited about it because it was just my big thing was like let's put some effort in and really develop things okay. and what i mean by that uh you know dads and a lot of other improv theaters we we tend to we're improvisers so we're like we feel like you know, give us a little bit of time. We'll figure it out. Don't worry about it. It'll get done. And that's kind of how improv seasons are put together a lot of times. And so I wanted to kind of take a step back and say, what if we approached it the way a traditional theater did, where we have a season already mapped out um, and already planned out? Um, mm-hmm. And what this would allow us to do is now if we have a basic blueprint for what the year is going to look like, we can then take some time and actually do some real development uh, for yeah. our plays. We can take more time in developing those plays, doing things like stage readings, getting some feedback on the play so that we're really, we can get, I can't, I can't make someone a better writer or make someone more talented, but if I can get you to do 30 drafts of your play versus five drafts of your plays, I have a pretty mm-hmm. good idea that it's going to be a better show. Um, right. And so... What I wanted to do was kind of create a little bit more, a lot more lead time, do the work. And that's, that's, and that's what it really comes down to is a lot of times we just, we don't want to do the work. We were improvisers. We'll figure it out on stage. It's like, no, we have to do the work. We have to mm-hmm. workshop some things. We have to really think through our format. We have to make sure that we know our format. We have to make sure that we know our format so well that we don't have to think about our format. Right. Um, and that's when it's really great is when no one's, because it's just muscle reflex. But yes. that takes a lot of reps and takes doing it over and over. And you need to have that time to really develop it. And so the big thing that I wanted to do was create some develop to develop it. And then the second part of that is, you know, obviously every everybody wants to create diversity in their work. The problem mm-hmm. is you can't take a level two, you know, 
uh, a student and then say, you're in the main cast now, look, we're diverse. And you're like, no, you just set up your theater f to fail, you set up that person to fail. Um, and so what you have to do is then take, so like um, the classic example, there's a, a performer at Dad's named uh, Ricky Boyton. He's never written a play before. And he pitched a play, which I, the concept was hilarious, but he's never written a play before. So what I need to do is rather than say, all right, you want to write this play? Great, write the play and we'll throw it up on stage. Uh, what I want to do is I want to take a year and we're just going to work through this play and we're going to keep rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it because it's not just get the play to where it needs to be, but I want to get him as a writer to where he needs to be Yeah. so that yeah. it's not so that he can A, put on a great show that yeah. makes him look good and sets him up for success but also gives him the tools so that the next time he writes a play, he'll be able to do it um, quicker and more efficiently and start doing that. And so it's about taking that time to develop performers in our work. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then you had a month to implement that. <laughs> we had a month and a half. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what, what uh, in your role, what was your experience like with the transition to the stage being shut off and uh and moving online as you did yeah i mean it was it was tough it was a lot of it, it's funny that i came into the role and my big plan was we're going to plan more things and then that hit and then all planning went out the window uh, we kind of joked around it's like I, I had probably three or four versions once COVID hit and once we were sh shut down at three or four versions of like, here's what our new season's gonna be now that COVID's hit, because it was always like, oh, well, this is gonna be, you know, two months tops, and then we'll come back and it'll be great. And it's like, okay, well, no, it's gonna be probably four, four to six months tops. And then they're like, great, no, nope, gonna throw that plan out. Okay, maybe like, and so like, it was just constantly coming up with plans and then throwing them out and then reacting and then creating new plans. And so, it was a it's a it was a lot of work to do very that saw very little um, fruits of that work yeah. um, because of that. Um, but on the positive side of it, um, it was great to see the team and the group of people that we had come together and people having to learn new skill sets within a couple of mm -hmm. weeks. Um, people stepping up and taking this hobby this knowledge they had that was kind of a hobby on the side and suddenly having to um, be the lead in a department that's now built around this. Um, yeah. And so so it was great for us. And frankly, I think, and this I think is kind of a universal thing across all boards, Every everybody has been talking about like, we should do more things online, we should have more classes online, and nobody's had the time to like really push it or do it. And then suddenly this kind of kicked us all in the butt and we're like we have to now and so and yeah. so there's a lot of other so I think there's a lot that comes out of this that we have these new income streams we have this new system we have this new thing that we know we can do that will never die after you know we come back to live performances again for us and when when we moved online it struck me that we ended up first starting out our, our group we first started out with just like well let's just kind of let's just play for mm -hmm. that was that was the mindset of some of some of them but it also ended up being a, a, a rather intense a very intense 
working out the product mm -hmm. and how to do improv online that getting back to one of your earlier points about doing the work um, at some point we decided uh, collectively or at least those who were kind of in on this to put in the work that I think when when you just are planning to just do the next improv show mm -hmm. it's pretty easy just to sort of say well I've done this for 20 years I'll just do another one or let's just try this one out on stage mm -hmm. where you really couldn't do that online yeah um, what kinds of things did you end up putting up online well I mean I think I think we kind of had a, a similar journey where it was like we don't know what we're doing so and it is also the weird thing of being the artistic director of being like I'm gonna sit here and tell you what is good and what is quality and what is it and I'm like I've never put anything online so how in the world right. am I gonna sit here and be the judge of like what's good so it was a lot of like let's play with some different things let's try some different things out like if if you're willing to like formulate a new show let's just try and see what happens and so there was a lot of yeah. that it was a lot of kind of um finding other performances that we had recorded and like getting those online um and that sort of thing um but then as we kind of went through it for a few months and kind of saw what our audience was responding to and work work we kind of started narrowing that down and then really could start planning some bigger things so like um one of the things that i was super proud of was um perry frost and um Alyssa brosey or two of our um our folks at dads and they came mm -hmm. up with sims prof and they basically built a dad's the dad's garage theater and a sims like the sims the video game format yeah, yeah. then built performers in sims and then they kind of created this sort of comedic drama as these video game characters walked around uh -huh. the theater and interacted and so that's something i have never seen before and was just blown yeah. away by that we've had some of those we just were right in the middle of our um live streaming a our holiday show now that was performed live and streamed like uh, like the performers were together for that one right Right, exactly yeah so the leads of it are uh kevin gleese and amber nash and they're main stage performers at dad's but they're also a married couple so okay. they had been quarantined this whole time so um uh, topher Payne, who's the um, narrator he literally writes hallmark movies um mm -hmm. and the joke was that like you'd say to him like you know hallmark movies seem formulaic and he's like there you're right here's the formula and so you're like oh well, we can just turn this into an improv format yeah. um and so and so kind of he's off to the side so they're able to like interact on the stage we can then videotape that and live stream that to an audience and so that was kind of another unique way that we could kind of work around um all the restrictions and hopefully it's right. a thing that we can you know continue to do um mm -hmm. well beyond mm -hmm. all of this and so we've yeah. had a couple of those kind of shows that were just like they were really cool concepts and cool things to do yeah um one of the other things i mean just kind of thinking about about your your journey in 2020 uh i think in part because of who you are part because of your position and part because you were willing to raise your hand and say you would do stuff mm -hmm. I know after George Floyd, you um, created and moderated a number of panels, mm -hmm. panel discussions that were available to be seen. I, I saw at least two of them that you moderated. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know exactly what your experience was. I'm, I'm assuming that was a heavy weight 
to uh, to bear at that time. Um, but if you look back at that experience, um, how do you feel like the improv community has responded? Do you feel uh, there's a lot that the jury is still out? Do you feel like there is um, much more listening that needs to be done than had than occurred in that time? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it just yeah. strikes me that that was a important moment where you were able to contribute to the improv community as a whole. And I'm curious as to your viewpoint on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's definitely, um, I don't know, it, it's funny, like, it, how do I want to say this? So uh, I grew up in, like I said, in California, in Inglewood. Yeah. And so I was, you know, down the street for the Rodney King riots. Um mm-hmm. And I remember that distinctly as a young man. And so I only mention that to say that, you know, the events of, you know, Floyd, uh, Floyd's murder were mm-hmm. tragic, but it wasn't like, oh, my God, this is the first time anything like this has ever happened in right. American history. Like, it's it's one of those things that this is for a lot of people just the first time they're connecting to it and they're seeing right. it. But it is a thing that is uh, a constant and a consistent thing that happens um, in America. And so it was great having those conversations. And I think it was yeah. great that folks were listening and reacting to it, which I think is great. I think the danger um, is that uh, I, I want people to listen. I want people to react. I want people, I want theaters to respond to that. But I think we have to be careful that we're not responding out of emotion that we're not responding out of knee-jerk reaction that we're not responding out of i need to relieve my white guilt so i'm going to do this thing mm-hmm. um because the challenge with all those things is that they're all emotion based and the thing about emotions is you give it some time and your emotions will change and so right. and so if that is the core or the center of what all the change is happening that's a problem because mm-hmm. those things will change and so for me I kind of built particularly those discussions around the idea of like, what could we do that would be sustainable? So like, for example, the discussions we had, we, I purposely scheduled them for like, try to do maybe one every three months. And people were like, oh, you should do it more often. You should do it more often. I'm like, no, because I know when things change, that's going to be too hard a schedule to maintain. We need to do a schedule that we can actually maintain in the long Mm -hmm. end. Five years from now, I, you feel like, okay, I could still maintain that schedule of once every three months. And so mm-hmm. uh, with the changes that are happening, I'm 100% for all the changes. I think we have to be careful to not to not do stuff out of reaction or we're like, we have to get this done fast because people need to see we're doing stuff. It's like, I'd rather you take the time, do it correctly, do it in a way yeah. that can be easily maintained over a long haul. Because anything that can be changed in two weeks can be unchanged in two weeks. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. when when whenever people set quotas for like we want to hit this percentage of of this type of person at this date, that's always great. The problem is that once you hit that date, you know the thing no one ever does is go back and check if you're maintaining that. Right. Because you could yeah. hit that date. You could set a press release. Everyone throw their hand. Yay. And then the next yep. year, it could just slowly and quickly slide back to where it was. And nobody will look because you set a date. We had to accomplish it. We accomplished it. And now we're done. And I think mm-hmm. 
the mentality has to be that it's not we're done this is an ongoing conversation this is work mm -hmm. that continues to happen um the the thing i keep saying is like george floyd was like a test for all these theaters and some of them got a's and some of them got f's and mm -hmm. there are very few things that i know for sure in the future but i know for sure in the future the police will kill another armed, unarmed black person and there will be anger and there will be upset and people in what it's going to do is going to create another test moment and the right. and i don't want you to have everything solved i think there's a lot of places that you can't you're not gonna be able to fix everything by then but what i'm asking for is that if you got an f when george floyd died i need you to get a c the next time it happens i need you to i need you to be better and on that journey to getting better and doing better every time these tests happen and not just oh we need to fix these three things and then we don't think about it again until we get called out online again you know three or four years down the road right yeah yeah because um I, I it's it's hard to know too in terms of some of the accountability aspects i think i'm interested in your opinion on this is mm -hmm. kind of why i'm putting it out there while improv is online and while the f the financial aspects uh, are distorted mm -hmm. um, because you don't have the same kind of crowds and the revenue stream and you know uh, dad's garage I think is a nonprofit right mm -hmm. so yes. I don't know hopefully giving has maintained but yeah. uh, Second City is a for-profit enterprise, so I don't think too many people are writing checks to Second City saying, hey, just do your best with this. Right, yeah. Um, but it's hard It's hard to, to know whether the things that maybe are easier to be performative about mm -hmm. or to make statements where you're not in the middle of the long haul of making the changes is going to be sustainable. So what, what kinds of things do you think are sustainable practices or um, commitments that people can and should make yeah i think um i think the changes have to be uh structural rather than cosmetic i think that's a big thing um i can point to two examples at dad's is um, okay. we it's always been that the artistic team that makes decisions about the future of like what we're doing artistically has always been the artistic director the education director and um, person who's work running our corporate side and those three okay. would always make like training you mean that kind of yeah, stuff yeah, corporate yeah, training and shows yeah. mm -hmm, exactly okay um and so those three would always kind of make the decisions moving forward and so one of the structural changes that we did was we made a artistic team and so it's still those three people but then we added um four performers and we specifically wanted a diverse group of performers and so now it's six people that are making those changes so even if you know next year there's a new higher priority that we need to deal with the diverse decision making team is always going to be there and we've already and we've set up a, a president that as the people leave or come and go to make sure that the people on that team are a diverse group and that's something that is um easily sustainable and frankly helps the theater as a whole um mm -hmm. because uh now we can kind of get a good sense of all right if we're picking this season we can kind of gauge a little bit better the reaction of different people because the group itself is diverse and they can have those voices in there and so that um that's been a big help mm -hmm. 
looking at um, we have these affinity groups now, which are like we have our um, our POC group, we have um, a women's group, we have an LGBTQ group, and they meet periodically. They have different things. The, I know the POC group meets like once uh, once a quarter, and so this is a time for everyone to get together, talk about anything that's happened in the last three months, set some goals for the next three months, things that are accomplishable and that we can do in the next three months. And those are things that like that can live forever and constantly be a source of accountability to the to the um, to the leadership and to what the theater does, because um, as long as there's always someone that is helping keep an eye on these different things, because just as an artistic director, you there's some stuff you're blind because you're a human being and there are going to be areas. And so like having groups that are specifically there to just watch certain things and keep an eye on certain things and let you know and identify issues before they become an issue. And mm -hmm. so you can handle them earlier. Um, like those are kind of the structural changes. In the example that you mentioned about the affinity groups, are mm -hmm. those the source of the four additional board members like that group might choose a, someone to put on this board that you're talking about or are um, they separate yeah so those are separate so like yeah. those so yeah um just because it's also those groups are a wide spread of the um so like there are people who work in the, who are bartenders as well as performers as well as folks that work yeah. on crew all part of those groups mm -hmm. and for the leadership team like those we need people that have a very specific skill set in order to mm -hmm. be able to like be able to help in those conversations. So it's not so much as like a electoral position as much as like, but at the same time we still have to make sure that the people we're putting in those positions are a diverse group that have that kind of outlook mm -hmm. and perspective. When you have the role of uh, managing the artistic aspect to it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> just thinking when you're talking about the online stuff and you're viewing it it's kind of like well how do i know whether this is good or not mm -hmm. i think when you watch something you have a personal sense uh, that normally we might say this is good or bad based mm -hmm. on our enjoyment mm -hmm. but as an artistic director if it's just does this appeal to me that probably is too small right right yeah absolutely S so how does an artistic director approach or how do you define what fits the artistic aspect as part of the uh, of the overall experience mm -hmm. um so that you make sure that there isn't too much weight given to a voice uh, where it can get again distorted i think where yeah. someone in that artistic role could could have maybe too much sway yeah absolutely one of the things this year has really pushed at least for me in our leadership is you know art subjective there's no way to change that but mm -hmm. what you can do is reduce the subjectivity right so for example if i'm evaluating someone doing improv there's some subjectivity to do i think this guy's a good improviser or do i not think they're a good improviser um, well, what I can do is say what makes a good improviser, right? Someone who's not blocking, you know, I, that's objective. If you blocked an offer three times in a show, then that's an objective thing for me to say, well, that's not good. Um, and so 
it's first of all for the exercise of defining what things I can say are objectively make someone good or not good at improv. Defining those, being clear about those, making sure I'm when I'm evaluating people, I'm talking about these are the things that I'm looking for in a good improviser. Um, and then once I have all that laid out, then I can kind of function and deal with what was the subjective things that I saw. And I can kind of clearly define that. And I think the other part of that is also you have to have different voices. Like there, I mean, I've, I've watched so much streaming um, shows this, um, <laughs> this year. Uh, but, you know, me and my partner, Annie, we, we watch shows together and we have, we have our together shows and then we have our apart shows. And, you know, because, you know, I like a good Mandalorian episode and she likes a good Victorian <laughs> drama episode. And mm -hmm. like, we won't watch those shows together, but we have those things. And so we have different tastes in that. And I think part of it is because we're human beings, but also part of it is because I'm coming from a male perspective. She's coming from a female perspective. So for me, I think that's why it's so important that decisions like that aren't just made in a vacuum, um, mm -hmm. that... You know, as an, if you're a good artistic director, you're also kind of getting feedback from folks that have a different perspective from you. And you learn to listen to those things and you learn to say, all right, this person, I don't think they're great. But like if the people you're talking to and every every 20 year old you've met is like this person's the greatest in the world. And you're like, well, it might be because I'm 40 um, and that might have that might color my view because they made a bunch of TikTok jokes and I don't know what that is. And so right. I have to I have to make sure that I'm hearing different perspectives and not just kind of hearing it and kind of blowing it off, but like genuinely hearing different perspectives and creating a process in this decision making process that allows for those voices to be in there so that I can make the best possible decision for the theater overall. I think it does. Yeah, especially. Though I think if you're able to see some of those things that tie to the human condition, yeah. that even if you don't understand the references, it makes it easier to see, is this person able to dig deeper to reach beyond just, oh, this is funny because you remembered something mm -hmm. that when you were scrolling through TikTok. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> As you are now uh, moving into the executive producer role of Second City, it's it's really interesting to me, John, that you are coming from a, a background or at least initial training that is Johnstonian mm -hmm. and story. Your experience of writing your own plays and being involved in that production, going to a place that has uh, the the Spolin Foundation, uh, some influences of Del Close the political satire mm -hmm. review style um those are different things i we had uh, jonathan pitts i don't know if you know jonathan um he might qualify for your dear john troop i don't know <laughs> how strict you are on it <laughs> but uh he talked about being in workshops at second city where keith johnstone came in twice and he was in i think only twice is when he came and john jonathan was in both of those and his experience is interesting in and of itself, but they were they seemed very disparate. Mm -hmm. You know, the the mentality was different, or the things to focus on. How is all of that? Knowing that you'll get there and mm -hmm. you'll work it out, right? Right. What are your anticipations about how that uh, blends? Well, I, I think there's two kind of 
things that are important is one i think ultimately particularly when you're talking about improv like there are absolutely different approaches to improv but i i, I view it as like a mountain and it's different faces but we're all getting to the same peak and so how you get there you know is your way but i think we're all trying to head to the same peak so i think there's that element to it but then the other element to it is i'm also not going into second city going all right guys i have all the answers and here's how based on mm -hmm. my knowledge here's how we're going to do things now um i think mm -hmm. i think a lot of people kind of it's funny i get messages from friends and stuff and you're like oh man you should do this play and that play and i'm like i you know i don't know that i'm actually going to be doing a lot of artistic things in this position like the need and the reason I'm there is more to help guide the overall direction of the theater mm -hmm. and then put smart people in places of authority to let them be smart people and do their job well. And, mm -hmm. and so for me coming in there, it's less of I need to put my stamp on how improv is done there and more of I need to put the best possible second city people in the best possible places and approach it with a um, mentality of this is a new second city. This is a time to um, reevaluate stuff that we're doing. I'm going to be there. And my the big question I'm going to ask is why? Why are we doing things this way? Why is, why is this happening? And if people are like, we do this way because A, B, and C, I'm like, great, then let's keep doing it because that totally makes sense. But if the answer is, oh, well, that's because we always do it this way in Second City, it's like, okay, well, now let's take look, go back and let's find a, is there a better way to do this? Mm -hmm. And and so for me, it's not about changing who they are as much as it's about updating and reevaluating is everything that we're doing absolutely the right thing, and then how can we integrate some diversity and some new ideas into a system that is already there and hopefully transform the system not by destroying everything but just kind of you know gutting what we don't need and adding what we do but there's some subjectivity in that too though right mm -hmm. um and perhaps some blind spots yeah. where you may think we've done things a certain way but there are some structural things that uh, maybe somebody just doesn't see, maybe nobody can identify, but has led to some of the things that, um, especially at the end of May and beginning of June, led to some, you know, some big decisions, some big foreshadowing of changes that I, you know, I, I don't think all of those things you can necessarily take everybody's word for it somebody's right. got to say mm, yeah we just we need to do something different or yeah. let's see what the results are and if the results aren't what what uh, comes out right that means something is off yes yes yeah obviously there's a lot of success mm -hmm. that can be pointed to and I don't you know I don't I don't know when when you have these other things that you know are changes that's obviously doesn't mean that the talent and performers and product that was put on stage wasn't laudable or really strong or whatever but there's these other things under the system that i don't know maybe you don't maybe you don't want to go in with too much of a list of i think these are the things that need to change yeah is that the mindset maybe john yeah it's, it's definitely like it's 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 research like that's that's a lot of 
especially coming in, it's a lot of digging and talking to people and having one-on-one -on -one meetings and talking to folks about their experiences, not just the the big headline-making ones, but the smaller everyday ones are the ones that I'm going to have to start having these conversations about and getting to the root of all of this. Because again, I don't want to just slap on a new pair, new paint and say, mm -hmm. let's all go on. But I, we have to get to the root of some of these. And I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, discovery and conversations. And, and I think a lot of opportunity for this, the staff and the team that they have to help be a part of what the new second city looks like. And I think that's the thing I'm excited about. And I think the thing that most people are excited about is like, this is an opportunity to to start with, to create something new and amazing and very cool. And being a part of that is exciting. Yeah, I think it is exciting. And I'm excited for Second City to have the benefit of, of you and what I know your leadership and what your heart for this is and your intentions. I, I, I think this is going to be a really good move, not just for you, but I think it's going to be a really good move for Second City. And I, and I hope the result is something that is that you can be proud of, um, maybe then, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe the proudest moment, especially if the team comes around there and it's something that's shared and wonderful and can hopefully lead and, and be an example for others as well. So, well, yeah. And I mean, they, they have, they have a great team in place. Like I, I, I want to make sure I emphasize that, that like the people that I've talked to, the people that I've interacted with are, Oh, yeah. Awesome, great people. And so I'm excited to, you know, work with them to really make something cool happen. Yeah, no, and, and, and there is. And then, mm -hmm. but, uh, but you're additive to yes. all of that. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. Well, I know I'm just conscious of the time, John. I'm glad we, we got to do this. It is. And uh, look forward to having you as a neighbor uh, just down the road a little bit. <laughs> That's and, awesome. And, uh, yeah, uh, best wishes. It's going to be great. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's John Carr. There's a kindness to John that seems to come through in every interaction I've had with him. So this was a lot of fun for me. And of course, there was a lot of meat on the bones in this conversation. One of the things that came through strongly for me was the discussion on finding your voice and the impact of seeing you and your experience on stage and putting you and your experience on stage as part of the process to discover that voice. It's an additional step of depth in an improviser's career that requires its own kind of introspection and its own kind of bravery. John talked about improv more generally. What might be at the top of that mountain that we're all climbing on, but on different paths? Unfiltered is a word that he used in that context a few times. The way I heard it is that it is not being thoughtless on stage, but to be so present in your improv that what you say has a realness and a rawness that can't come if you are evaluating each word you might say before it leaves your mouth. That will no doubt lead to funny, but the kind of funny that improv produces best, and that's based on shared experience and discovery. Related to this, I think, is the importance of putting up a variety of voices and perspectives. That's critical for our improv communities generally, but also likely a necessary ingredient for putting up shows that you can not only feel good about, but feel proud to be a part of at the end. We've got just a couple episodes left in season three, so this is a great time to share how this podcast could be more impactful for you. If you have an idea for a guest, a shift in the format, topics to address in a future episode, let me know by getting a hold of me on social media or by email at wit at improvcomedyconnection.com. I'm doing this to be of help to you as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy. 
My name again is Witt Schiller, and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee with Fishsticks Comedy. You can check us out at fishstickscomedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media at Witt Schiller on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also go to witschiller.com for additional content and resources to help you in your comedy or communication journey. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.